All right, can we celebrate what God's done in the first half of the year? You're going to hear, I know some of that's like more detail-oriented stuff, and you're like, what's happening? Well, the church is getting organized so that we can better equip the saints for works of service. Uh, the chief call of the leaders in the church is that everyone thrives in their gifts, led by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit to the glory of Jesus as a local church under healthy leadership. And so we've been doing a lot of work looking at how we are structured, what this looks like for us moving forward. And if you have questions, uh, this is not a good old boys club, and we want to be available. We are servants, not uh, leaders that hide behind walls, and we want to be available to you. So if you have questions about how we're structured, about what happened in this whole by the building thing, uh, we'd love to answer any questions you have in any amount of detail you need, uh, because at the end of the day, uh, we serve as one symphony to the glory of Jesus, and we don't want any of you uh, playing a fiddle bitter, because I don't like bitter, fiddle, fiddle players, and I can't say bitter fiddle players fast. Uh, amen. Open your Bibles to Ruth. We're in the last chapter, Ruth chapter 4. That's what we're going to study today. Hey, six weeks now, we've been in this little love story uh, looking at uh, a faithful God in a very fearful time over a life story of Ruth, Naomi, and a guy named Boaz. Uh, if you've been here and someone's like, well, what have you been doing over the last month and a half? I studied a whole book of the Bible. That's what you can humbly brag about. If you didn't get to watch all of it, all of it's on YouTube. We'd love for you to take a, a second or time to catch up, fill in the gaps. Uh, it's been very encouraging, I hope, to all of you. Uh, we've talked to single folk, married folk, in between, don't know where we're at folk. Uh, it's complicated folk. We've talked about family and parenting stuff that's all in this book. Uh, it's been very helpful, I hope, uh, to your walk and your relationship with Jesus. And today, we get a conclusion and a reflection in this book. And so if you have your Bibles, Ruth chapter 1, it's right before 1 Samuel, right after the book of Judges, in case you need help finding it because you're not looking at this on your phone, but you're old school with a Bible that if someone comes in here intending to do something wrong, you could still hit them with it and leave a mark. Amen? Amen. Y'all gonna wake up? Y'all gonna make me work. Here we go. Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. I've entitled this sermon, Good Endings. Good Endings. Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. Just then the family redeemer he had mentioned came by, so Boaz called out to him, Come over here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. Then Boaz called ten leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, You know Naomi, who came back from Moab. She is selling the land that belonged to her relative Elimelech. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you do not want it, let me know right away because I'm next in line to redeem it after you. Let me give you a little bit of detail. Uh, in ancient times, what you would do in every city is you would fortify the city with a gate. It's so at night you could protect the people that were within the city walls, and it gave you a sense of security in an unsecure time. Uh, also, within that city gate, you would, on top of those walls, build lookout towers. That way you could communicate to people in the city if there was a siege coming or people coming after your city. You would often build your cities on high places so that you could see people coming from a distance on the roads that would lead 
to your city. Whenever you had legal uh, problems, if you wanted to sell or purchase land, or if you had a court hearing that needed to be heard by someone, you didn't have a judge, but you had elders in every city. And they handled the majority of the legal situations that would go on as far as business within the city at the city gates. Around the city gates, in the city walls, you would build a courtroom or several classroom style spaces where business could be had. It had windows on the inside city walls so that those who couldn't fit into the small rooms could be nosing and peeking on your business. Because being nosy ain't nothing new. Amen? What you do this week? If we were being honest, for some of us, we were nosy. What do we love doing? We like being nosy. We love gossip. It's salacious. That's why when you're standing in line, they still don't sell much things in paper, but you can still find a tabloid because people love to be nosy. Just mind your business. Come on. Some of y'all need to look at your neighbor and just be like, hey, mind your business, but it cuts too close to home. Don't, don't do it. Don't do it. So, so you would do your business within there. Boaz, uh, after getting some really bad advice and being put in a very precarious situation by his uh, soon-to-be mother-in-law, Naomi, uh, meets with Ruth at the threshing floor. Ruth offers and says that she would like for him to be his kinsman redeemer. We're told in the first few verses that Boaz is not first in line to be the kinsman redeemer. What does that mean? Ruth wants to marry Boaz. Boaz wants to marry Ruth, but they've got to go through some legal proceedings to make it possible to make it legal. That's no different and not scandalous in today's society. If you want to get married legally, you've got to go down to a courthouse. You've got to get some paperwork, some legal stuff in order. Uh, And then based on the uh, usual family you come from, there's an expected party that you have to throw, plan, organize, design, gather, pick flowers and cake and what kind of Swedish meatball you're going to eat at it and everything in between. It takes some months to get the legal proceedings handled and everything that's expected by the family done. Then you have a big ceremony. It lasts way faster than you believe it should last. You spend way more money than you believed you would spend. Maybe you got a honeymoon because you budgeted well and then you set off on life's journey together. Well, that's what's going on. Boaz is in the second seat as kinsman redeemer. This was a legal system that was built for security in a time that was very unsecure for women. If your husband passed away, you had left your father's and your father and mother's home, you would often not be welcomed back into that home as a financial burden, which is very difficult to stomach and think about. And so you would end up being put in a position of vulnerability. You would be in a position where your only job likelihood would be to uh, prostitute yourself or to do something else that was of ill repute, beg, live on the streets, be homeless. But you didn't have many rights. You didn't have much land or anything that you would inherit. It would go on to other people. And if you didn't have a child, you were in the worst position possible and most likely to be destitute. So they put in a law called the kinsman redeemer. The next of kin of your spouse would offer to take you in, marry you, have a child that could continue the legacy, and they would inherit what your husband would have passed down through their son, uh, and their name will continue in a way in, uh, in the land of Israel, and you would be taken care of financially and fiscally in that way. It culturally doesn't equate to the culture that we have today in many ways, but there's a lot that we can learn from it. The, the first thing that we can see in this, though, is some interesting stuff that we need to bring up. It says that Naomi is having a fire sale and selling off Elimelech's land. That's verse 3 and 4. In this interaction, Boaz brings it up to the kinsman redeemer at the city gate with ten elders together that this is what's on, uh, on task. There's a fire sale. You can buy the land for cheap. But that's not really what's going on. What's really going on is the right to buy the land. 
because Elimelech has sold his land and probably done it in the most disgraceful way possible. The idea within this culture was that we wouldn't think within our own selfish short amount of time on earth, but we would consider generations within our short amount of time on earth. And so there was a cultural expectation, if you grew up in the Old Testament times, that you would live in a way that may be difficult for you but better for them, the them being those that come after you. And so every decision you would make culturally would be to keep in mind the next generation. Now, they didn't do this perfectly. When we end the book of Joshua, Joshua uh, tells the story of them coming into the promised land. The priests are holding the Ark of the Covenant. The waters are parted by the Ark of the Covenant. They come through on dry land a second time into the land that God has promised them. Anybody ever read the story? Cool. I'm going to recap it for you now. You can go and make sure I'm not a liar later because you shouldn't just blindly trust me that I'm telling you something's in the Bible. If your Bible's not open, you're not reading it yourself. End of the book, okay? So they're standing there. They go through on dry land. Joshua goes to the 12 tribes, tells them to get a rock, build a memorial. And when the next generation comes and asks them what that memorial is about, you're to point at it and tell them that God parted the waters and provided for you on the other side of the water, and he brought you in the position that you're in today. That who you are, what you are, is not just because of luck, it's not just because of physical power, but it's the very hand of God that moves so that you could be where you're at. And then in doing so, you would raise up a generation who would know of the trustworthiness of God, and they would then continue to walk in the faithful hand of God, trusting God in every step of their life. The idea is one generation will tell another generation of the good works of God. Legacy, that's the idea. We think in weeks, hours, and years, God thinks in terms of generations. And you've got to understand that. For some of you, God has given you a difficult task. Your starting point wasn't great. But by God's grace and through godly effort, you can make sure that the next generation's starting point is better than yours. Does this make sense? This is the idea. It says in the Proverbs that it's wise for you to leave a legacy and that a fool leaves nothing behind, having devoured everything that he's had in his life. And so you and I are to think in terms of legacy when it comes to the decisions we make, the business we do, and the way that we set up the next generation that comes behind us. I said it earlier in the series, I'll say it again. For many of you, you're only concerned with a good time. And that's a problem. Because at the end of the day, you and I are called to be concerned with a good legacy. I would rather have a good legacy that's filled with difficulty in my life so that there can be blessing in my kid's life than to have a good time and leave behind a lot of difficulty for my kids. Does this make sense? How about you? How about you? So what's going on? Boaz is in second seat. This guy that's never named is in first seat. There's a fire sale being done for the rights to go to the person who purchased the land, likely from Elimelech whenever they moved off to Moab, and buy it back, therefore redeeming their spot within the people of God and the presence of God and the land that God promised that he would give them. So this is not the end purchase, this is just the rights to get to where you can purchase the land and by God's grace, through the line of Elimelech, there will be a story that will go on, not because Elimelech was good, but because God was gracious to him through a man named Boaz who took on what others would see as a burden because he saw it as a blessing through the lens that God saw it. So Boaz offers it to him in verse 4, look at it with me. I thought I should speak to you about, about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you do not want it, let me know right away because I am next in line to redeem it after you. The man replied, all right, I'll redeem it. I'm in, seat, I'm in the seat to do it. I can buy the land. 
who doesn't want an extra few hundred acres or whatever it is, sounds good to me. (laughs) Then Boaz, verse 5, told him, Of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the family land in the name. Verse 6, then I can't redeem it. Now, we don't get any reason why he says no here, but there's a couple things we should consider. One is, he says in verse 6, the family redeemer replied, because it might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land, I cannot do it. What's endangering his estate? It may be that he's not economically well off enough to take on Naomi and Ruth into his house, to feed them, to care for them, to then know that he's going to work and it's going to have a more complex life with this extra land to steward, only for it to be given to that, line, to that, that lineage and that name, for it to be basically te- taken and separated away from his sons that he already has. So it may be that he's worried about his own economic status and stability. You know, like that's where a lot of people are right now in our country. One man says that he's going to have to lay off people and stop hiring and Tesla stock falls and plummets, all because one man said we may be going into a recession, and everyone loses their mind, and everyone starts selling everything because of economic stability, being worried about it. And we see the same thing happening here. Maybe that's what's going on with him. A second thing that may be happening is he may be married, and she may not be looking for another wife to come home. Just going to throw it out there. Apparently, sometimes if you see a destitute lady, it's not your call to marry, take her in, bring her home, and say, babe, it's been a good run. There's a guest room down the hall. And we're going to move in here because I'm a man of God and I want to redeem her. That, apparently he had a wife that would have frowned upon that, potentially. Some of you may, some of you may not. Some of you are like, you mean I get a bed and no one's going to touch me? They're going to leave me alone I can go to sleep? This sounds like a phenomenal idea. Go redeem someone. These are preacher jokes. It's all I've got. It's all I've got, okay? Verse 7. And now in those days, it was the custom... In Israel, for anyone transferring a right of purchase to remove his sandal and to hand it over to the other party. Do you agree? I agree. Here's my shoe. <laughs> what? To remove his sandal and hand it over to the party. This publicly validated the transaction. Okay. There's not papyrus, there's not paper, there's not copiers, we don't have filing machines, there's no printing press. The printing press comes in the 1500s, we're way away from the 1500s, okay? So like, we're dealing in a society where we've got a legal transaction that's going to happen, there's going to be witnesses, and we need proof that it can happen. And here's the proof that sneakerheads have been around for a long time. Because some of you, you know who you are, you love your shoes. Like, you have a room for your shoes, you clean your, like, what's your hobby? What are you doing this Friday night? I'm cleaning my shoes. I'm curating my collection. I've got some gin run LeBrons. I'm not a big fan of LeBron. I love my shoes. Those things never touch anything other than a basketball court. When's the last time I was on a basketball court, you ask? I don't know, like three years ago, maybe. How many pair of basketball shoes do I have? More than I should. Are they in pristine condition? Yeah, my orange and blue Russell Rest books from the Oklahoma City Thunder, they look pristine. My Gen 1 Jordans, they, touch, they have never touched anything outside. Those are not made for outside shoes. Those are court shoes. You only wear them when you're on the court. So you're like, well, it seems like you've retired after three years. Doesn't matter. When I see a good pair of sneakers, I can't help myself. I love sneakers. They're valuable to me. Sometimes I like my sneakers more than I like my children. My sneakers have never made me walk on a Lego in the middle of the night, but my children have. My sneakers have protected me from Legos in the middle of the night. I'm just saying, think about what's kinder, the shoes or the kids. 
We're in the middle of a baseball tournament right now. My son's not like the way that I've pitched and coaches pitch. He blamed the loss of the game, not on their 11 errors, but on me yesterday. I like my shoes. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. That's what I'm trying to say. I mean, just imagine, you've got to prove that you had a transaction with a friend. How, do you, how, how can you prove it? I got their sandal. I mean, that's a valuable sandal. Like, if they had safes back in the day, guess what you would have in your safe? Sandals. What's that sandal for? 100 acres over there. Like, what's that sandal for? 20 acres over there. And, like, you would, like, keep these things as proof because you've got 10 elders in a sandal. And if the 10 elders die, you still got the sandal. That way you can prove that you own the land. Now, there's a little bit of a break here that's not recorded. What would likely have happened is when they came to agreement in verse 7, they would have gone out to Elimelech's land and they would have walked it, like a modern-day survey. And then after they had walked and agreed that these were the parameters of the land, he would then take his shoe off, hand it to Boaz, and Boaz then would, in agreement, go and approach the guy that owned the land and purchase it, who likely wasn't a native from the nation of Israel. So... We see this weird transaction happen. The other family redeemer drew off his sandal, and he said to Boaz, You buy the lamb, verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, You are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon, and with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband, who did not think about legacy. He only thought about having a good time, and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. This feels weird, isn't it? In the middle of a love story, we get business. It's been like, like, you know, like really nice and, and romantic and, you know, man of character and woman of character and come under my wings and, like, uh, you know, romantic language. And then it's like icky business, which brings up a question. Is business Christian? Is business Christian? Because we've got this kind of culture in church that kind of demonizes in some groups profit, and in other church they deify profit, which then makes business feel like it's missing the point, right? So like poverty theology teaches that if you're profitable, then you're probably greedy, which isn't true. And prosperity theology teaches that if you're not profitable, then you're not godly, which isn't true. Because last I checked, it's possible to be poor and godly, and I've also met plenty of poor people who are anything but godly. It's also possible to be profitable and godly, but I've met plenty of people who are profitable and ungodly. So what's the godly way of doing business? Well, it's integrity, it's above board, and it's with the right priorities. Let me give you an example. For some of you, in the next 6 to 12 months, you're going to be presented with an opportunity to work harder for more money. You're going to be presented with an opportunity to move jobs, careers, or even uproot your family and move to another city for more money. And what's going to happen in that moment is your theology of work will come into play. Meaning, how do you see work? Why do you work? What's the point of work? And if your bottom line is money, then what will end up happening is you may make more of it, but you will be nonetheless no more godly because of it, or more generous. What will end up happening for many of you, because money is your bottom line, is you will, since you serve money, sacrifice people and relationships so that you can gain more money. 
And in doing so, instead of being godly in your business and glorifying God and blessing those that God has given you in relationship around you, you will sacrifice relationships for what your real God is, which is money and the treasure of your heart. So it's possible to have great opportunity but with bad motivation and as a result of it it doesn't get better for people around you or for you and I've seen many people do this for the sake of a dollar they'll for six minutes six months or a year or ten years or it's just a season which turns into half your life work themselves into physical malhealth all because they're serving money thinking that it's going to be a blessing to people that they have no time to actually connect with or be around because they've sacrificed those relationships to get more of what they actually want and serve, and worship, which is money. So, so the idea is this. It's possible to prioritize money over people, and therefore do business in an ungodly way, but it's also possible to prioritize people over money. And that's what's going on in this exchange. There's a man, no name, not mentioned, who gets an opportunity to buy land. It's simply a business transaction. Naomi and Ruth, they're baggage. They're not relationships that he desires to have. They're just another burden he has to carry. On the flip side, there's a man named Boaz. He's in the same business transaction, but it's people over money. It's not about the business. It's about the people. So he's going through the legal process that he needs to go through because he wants relationship with the people. So at the end of the day, when you're considering these things, you're trying to think, how can I honor God in my business? Because last I checked, and whatever you do, you're to do it to the glory of God. That means your business, that means your work is to be done in a way that God would be proud of it, and your people around you would be blessed by it. Last I checked, then what that means is we have something other than to consider in our business decisions than money, because at the end of the day, we are to prioritize people over the money, and sometimes that means for the sake of the people, we say no to opportunities to make more money because we want to be a blessing with our presence and our attention and our time and the things that we can't replace ourselves with by being present, making the money we have. It's, it's an incredible tension that you have to consider. Business matters to God. For some of you, you need to get a backbone when it comes to business because the Bible is a book that is filled with sin suffering and stewardship and stewardship is the business part before genesis chapter 3 guess what exists in the garden of eden imperfection work god put adam in the garden to work it to work it to care for a garden he had a job let me let you in on a little bit of a spoiler alert some of you think that you're going to go to heaven get fat get wings get a harp and get a cloud you're not a care bear and you're not a precious moments figurine. <laughs> and none of that's in the Bible. And on the other side of creation, in a perfect sense, not in a back-breaking sense, not in a thorns and thistles sense, there will be, to the glory of God, all of us worshiping God, and part of that worship we worship with work. And we will work in a way that honors and glorifies God, that has purpose, that will be filling and life-giving to us and glorifying to Him, and it'll be a great Thing. Now, in the meantime, since work exists on both sides of the story, you and I are called to work as kingdom citizens that represent that kingdom to come. So our work is to have its place, and it's to have a purpose, and it's so that we can honor God and bless those around us. Does this make sense? When work's anything about anything other than honoring God and blessing those around us, it's become a plague, it's become a thorn, it's become a thistle, it's become rotten. So why do I go to work? To honor God and to bless my family so that I can leave a legacy behind for them. 
Why do you work? Y'all don't want to think 11 o'clock? Y'all didn't come to, like, y'all came to just hear, everything's fine, just go home. Or did you come to be made by the power of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God into the image of Christ? Why do you work? Think about it, man. Working 70 hours a week and you think it's for the kids? It's not for the kids. Let's call it what it is. You would rather be there than at home. You're replacing yourself with money, and money can't replace you. Let's call it what it is. You see, your pursuit, your passion, your drive is to be done to the glory of God. And some of you are doing anything but giving God glory in the way that you're working. So we are called to work in a way that honors God. This is the example we see in chapter 4. Look at it with me. Verse 11, after the transaction's done, now that everyone's quiet and I'm getting some looks that make me feel uncomfortable, then the elders and all the people that were standing at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, from whom all the nations of Israel descended. May you prosper in Epaphrath and be famous in Bethlehem. And may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestors, Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. This is very interesting. There's two prayers prayed in the entire book of Ruth. One's prayed by Naomi in Ruth chapter 1. One's prayed by the elders as a blessing over Boaz in chapter 4. Guess what happens in both instances? God answers the prayer. I know it's a shocker. I know it's hard. I know some of you prayed once back in like 96 about that one thing. One time, God didn't answer, so you just moved on. But apparently, an active, consistent prayer life is an effective tool. It's a good thing. Think about this prayer. What's the prayer? That they would prosper, that they would be famous in Bethlehem. We're thousands of years removed. He's not Bethlehem famous. He's biblically famous. He's worldwide. He's worldwide before Pitbull went worldwide. I mean, this is an amazing story. And God answered every bit of this in just a few verses, which proves that maybe a man wrote this book called Ruth because there was a whole nine-month process that went into this child coming in, but they only get a few verses about that detail. We didn't get into like, and in the first trimester, she greatly labored, and the child nestled in her rib cage in the second trimester and kicked her heart out of rhythm a couple of times, then gave her acid indigestion in the third trimester with a moment of hope and a glimmer of shining in her face until the wrath of God came upon her, and she said, ouch, with the child. I like to think that may be what was in the details if a woman was writing the book of Ruth. It's just an opinion. Maybe a good one. But in just a few minutes, there's a son named Obed, Obed that fills the arms of Naomi that continues the family line of Elimelech. It's an incredible story. Obed's going to have a son named Jesse. Jesse's going to have a son named David. David's going to sit on the throne of God forever through an heir. That God's going to give him. His name was this guy named Jesus. So a Moabite who has a very scandalous past as far as a people and a culture gets written into the story of God. And what we see happen is two things. God answering prayers and God doing what God does. Redeeming. 
This is what God does. He's a redeemer. Think about where some of you were a decade ago. Like, we don't have to think about it. I could Google it and find the record. And look at you. Think about the times you pull papers on people and you're still with them. Think about the times that, that legitimately everyone in the community was whispering negative things about you that you had given them material to use. And now, look at what God has done. See, see, this book's a conclusion, but it's a reflection. And what we get in these last few verses is this reflection on the fact that God does incredible things. And we get their story to remind us in the middle of ours that sometimes in the middle of your story, it doesn't look incredible. It doesn't look life-changing. It, it doesn't look like anything's shifting. It doesn't look like anything miraculous is happening. But then all of a sudden in the middle of the story, if you could get this reminder and get this hope, you'd be reminded that God does this in stories. He answers the prayers of those who are crying out and they're suffering and their grief in the process of not knowing where they're going or not knowing what this is going to look like. And not only is the God that answers prayer, but he brings everything to redemption, meaning some of it ain't good, but it's, if it's not good, then God's not done. Because last I looked, the book's filled with stories of God taking stories like Naomi, who no way walking out of Moab is going, oh yeah, few thousand years from now they're still going to be talking about me because I've got a grandson that's coming that's going to be tied to Jesus it, she doesn't see this she's not thinking that anything good's happening she's bitter she's changed her name to Mara not expectant not hopeful not God is faithful no 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 she sees in a moment what she can't see in a generation. And for some of you, you need to be reminded from the story of Ruth that all you're seeing is a moment and you need to look at it. And in God's grace, someday you will look at it in terms of a generation. You know, I've brought this up before, but in the book of Revelation, there's this interesting story. After, the heavenly, uh, after uh, everything is set right and we're at the heavenly feast, it says, and they raised the cup and told the stories of Moses. It's a really interesting story. Some of you have heard me talk about this. Like, think about it. We're at the heavenly feast, and then we start talking about things that God did through Moses way back in Exodus. And I, I just wonder, like, if this is not a preview, okay, of what this first few hundred years of heaven are going to be like, because it, it sets up this precedent that maybe Moses stands up at the heavenly feast, and he's like, I was a murderer, <laughs> adopted run away, forgotten in the wilderness. And God chose me, the murdering babbler who wasn't of eloquent speech, who didn't trust that God could, and used me and worked through me to deliver my people from an entire nation. And, and then maybe another guy gets up like David, and he could say, I was a murderer. It seems like murderers have a lot in common in heaven. Some of you think your works are going to get you there. There seems to be a lot of people that have like done a lot of bad things that are there. And there are a lot of you who may be moralistically, in your mind, neutral, who will never even darken the hall of heaven. Because you're never going to get there on the basis of works. You're never going to get there on the basis of being good within and of yourself. It takes a Savior who was perfect to make a way for an imperfect person like you, no matter what varying degree of imperfect you think you are. Some of you think you're daggum near Jesus, and you need to be reminded you're daggum closer to Satan than you've ever been near to Jesus. And you just need to hear. You, 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 ain't, you are not close to his righteousness. You are not close to his goodness. You are not close to his perfection. And the point is not that he came so that you couldn't have him. He came because without him availing himself to you, you didn't deserve him, couldn't earn him, couldn't receive him, and had no hope without him. 
And this is the beauty of the story. Maybe David gets up, he raises the cup, and then Paul, and then Peter. I mean, think about the people that could raise the cup. And and then maybe you and I get to raise the cup. And and you and I get to say, man, I I was a stuttering, mumbling, commandment-breaking kid that was born in Moonville. I mean, can anything good come out of Moonville? You don't even know where Moonville is, and you've lived your whole life. Right off 25, you're through it before you thought you hit it. I, mean, I was born into a crazy world. I mean, my dad didn't have indoor plumbing in his house until he was 16. I mean, we were poor, poor. First generation ever to graduate college is the generation right behind me. And in two generations, God's done amazing things for my family. He has richly blessed us. When I reflect back on it, like I, I'm overwhelmed at the story of redemption that God's telling. I mean, we're a bunch of moonshiners and lawbreakers. And God's like, yeah, you're in my family? See, we see prayers answered. We see redemption that comes. And I'll, I'll close with this because I think it's set up really well with the things I'm talking about. What we end up with at the end of this book, look at the last verse with me. It says, Verse 14, the women of the town said to Naomi in seeing Obed, the child, praise the Lord who has provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. There's a third prayer, third blessing. Obed's pretty famous. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Man, that's good. I mean, Naomi, empty hands, now has full hands. She's empty in the beginning, arms are full in the end. Notice in verse 13 it says that whenever Boaz and Ruth slept together, that the Lord enabled her to become pregnant. That's a tough text, isn't it? Let me hit on that just as your pastor lovingly for a minute. For some of you, you've struggled with infertility for a long time. God sees you. He's not being hateful towards you. He loves you. You could, in the infertility battle have prayed and gotten bitter and come to a point where you just don't bring it before God any, anymore. Even though it's a desire within your own heart and soul, it burns. You want it. And the desire's there. The prayer's just not there. And the prayer's not there because you just don't believe God will answer it or look favorably upon you. On the flip side, there's some of you that stopped worshiping altogether. You didn't just stop praying. You stopped singing. <laughs> you stopped trusting. You stop walking with God because the infertility didn't get answered and other people's arms are full and yours are empty. And the desire is still there. The, the call for the believer, it's not easy. The call for the believer is that if the desire is there, you make your request known to God. Why? Because he opens the womb. I mean, if he can take a woman named Sarah and open the womb in her age when she's way past her biological clock working, right? If he can take a Hannah and open up her womb, if he can take a Rachel and open up her womb, I mean, we're filled with stories of women that cry out to the Lord, sometimes for a long period of time, with no answer, but they, nonetheless, it's a desire, so they cry out. Why do we cry out? Because in crying out, we can trust that God will change the desire 
or in due time give us an answer to the request that we have. Now, I do have to put this in here. <laughs> and it's hard because I understand, like, we can be flippant with our advice as pastors and Christians to other people who are hurting. And I do not mean to be flippant about your pain. I understand it is real. But my, my encouragement is you put it before God when the desire is there. You don't stop no matter what or no matter how long. And the other side is that you become open-handed to how God answers your prayer. Not looking for a, a way out for God here, but, but my point is, so you're like, how can we change our world? Well, there's an, tonight there may be kids. I don't know if they still are, but there were. There were kids sleeping at the DSS office here in town because there's no place for them to go. But there's lots of Christian churches in this community with extra bedrooms. Well, they're difficult. I don't want to bring them in with my younger kids. You may not be in a season where that would be what God would have you do, but let me give you a testimony of a couple of people I know. They, older couple, raised kids, had a big house. They're like, all right, we either need to sell the house or we need to honor God with the house, prayed about it, felt God lead them to adopt teenage kids who were the least likely to be adopted. And so they're on, I think, round three of taking in teenage kids into their house, loving them in a godly home, giving them stability throughout the most formidable years of their life, and then launching them off into the world. They adopt them as their own kids, even though they don't have to, take on the financial burden of them, even though they don't have to, because they want to be a blessing to the next generation. And they want to do their part in honoring God and raising up a generation that would know and love the Lord. And for some of you, like, my arms are empty. Well, they don't have to be. For some of you, the answer that God's given you is a child that you may not have biologically birthed, but nonetheless, he has called your own. And if you would open up your house and your arms and your heart, you could change a generation within our community because there's thousands of kids today that need a home and they need to know that there's a Savior. And we represent a kingdom that is worthy of everyone getting to experience and come in contact with. Perhaps the unique way that God would have you do something that would change the starting point of a generation forever would be to take a few of these kids and bring them into your empty arms and into your home so that you could love them forever. I don't want to guilt you and I don't want to put that on you, but I believe it's a call that God has for some of you. And there are some of you that are a remedy to the cries of kids who need a home in our community. Last thing, this book, the book of Ruth, it is not a biography. It is a testimony. Let me make sure you understand that. See, biographies tell the stories of the great things you do. But testimonies tell the great stories of what God does. For some of you right now, you're living a biography. Uh, when you're gone, people will stand up at your funeral and they'll talk about all the great things you did. But let me be very clear to you. When I die and I'm in the pine box, don't you get up and give a biography in a life that I hope was lived as a testimony. A testimony speaks to the work God did. That's what I want to live for. You see, a biography says, this is how I got through it. This is how I overcame my challenges. This is how I overcame my addiction. This is how I overcame my struggles. This is how I pulled myself up. This is how I overcame being a single parent. This is how I overcame the divorce. This is how I overcame the heartache. This is how I overcame the sickness. This is how I fixed myself. This is how I healed myself. I am my hero. That's a biography. I don't want to hear your biography. I don't need more biographies. The world needs a symphony of testimonies. And that's what God desires to give you. 
See, a testimony doesn't say I. A testimony says God. God overcame. God healed me. God saved me. God came through. God endured me. God supplied me. God restored me. God picked me up. God fixed me. God redeemed me. God is the hero. Biographies don't give any hope. They just speak to, I'm good, y'all are bad. But testimonies give everyone hope because they speak to a God who is good at work in a bad people. And there's no prerequisite required for you to have this good God at work in your life other than you receive him by grace through faith. Romans chapter 10 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ Jesus was raised from the dead, then he is faithful and just to forgive you bad people who are more like Satan than you are like Jesus of all of your iniquity. And that's, the, that's why it's the gospel and it's good. That's why you should share your story with any and everyone you come into contact with because you've got a story not about what you've done but what God's done and it's a casting net that invites whosoever would believe into the family of God and the kingdom of God and in the hope that can only be found in God. So don't share your biography. Don't live to tell a good biography. Live to share and walk in a good testimony of the goodness and the glory of God. And at the end of your life, may the next generation praise the God who was faithful in your generation as they serve him walking into the future, raising up the generation behind them. In Jesus' name, our prayer team is going to be here. If you need prayer, we'd love to meet with you and pray with you. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus, we'd invite you to surrender your life to him. I spend a lot of my time in the South trying to convince a lot of you cultural Christians that you don't know Jesus. And for some of you, you hear the hand of God knocking on the door of your heart going, look, I understand grandma's faith, but this is not a secondhand thing. It's a firsthand thing. And for some of you, you need a firsthand faith, and God's inviting you into it today. Our prayer team's here. If you need prayer, if you need to surrender your life to Jesus, you move as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name, amen. Get up.